From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. With 2024 well underway, there's lots of attention on the political climate in the Commonwealth, and women filling top lawmaking roles have been front and center. One that everyone should keep their eyes on is Pennsylvania Democratic Speaker of the House, Joanna McClinton. I sit down with the speaker to talk about the significance of being first, the responsibilities that come with it, and her plans to work with the House GOP leaders and the Senate to advance the business of the people. As a former public defender, I know that the justice system also makes mistakes. Charity Howard catches up with the American Idol of ballet. They are auditioning for maybe 40 or 50 different schools and companies all at once. That's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Pennsylvania Democratic Speaker of the House Joanna McClinton is one to watch. She was first elected in 2015 to serve communities in West and Southwest Philadelphia in Yaden and Darby in Delaware County. As a state lawmaker, she made history not once, but three times. First in 2018, when she became the first woman and first African-American to be elected as House Democratic Caucus Chair. And again in 2020, when she was the first woman elected House Democratic Leader in the institution's 244-year history. In 2023, McClinton was elected Speaker of the Pennsylvania House, the first woman to serve in that position. And we wanted to catch up with this trailblazer as she has just completed her first year in her historic role. Speaker of the House, Joanna McClinton, welcome to Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. Well, you are considered to be a fast rising star in uh, Pennsylvania politics, having been first elected in 2015, as we just mentioned, to serve your constituents in Southwest Philadelphia and the like. It hasn't even been 10 years. And here you sit as the first woman, first black woman, might I add, uh, to serve as Speaker of the House. So, of course, that's not bad for a girl from Southwest Philly. Talk about your roots, if you could, Speaker McClinton, and your early political aspirations. Absolutely. So I'm truly grateful, humbled, and at times still in disbelief that I've been blessed by my neighbors, first of all, to be their voice in Harrisburg and privileged to have the support from my colleagues to be the Speaker of the House. Pennsylvania's House is the oldest continuous one. We've never taken a break. And because we're the oldest continuous one, we have a lot of roots that go back to Benjamin Franklin, who was Speaker of the House. And I'm just grateful to be a part of a long line of so many uh, people who've led our Commonwealth. Now, my political aspirations were lacking completely. From a child, I grew up in the 80s. I loved watching all the court TV shows. So all I could focus on as a child and even as a teenager was becoming an attorney. Uh, When I was in college studying political science, I did a few different internships and I found them very exhilarating. But I could have never ever envision myself to be a candidate for public office one day. So it's really funny to see where things are right now. Wow. Well, you weren't interested as a child. So what sparked the interest? So after doing uh, public defense in Philly for almost a decade, I got a job working for my state senator. Working in my senator's office as his chief counsel was truly eye-opening. I had never paid attention to what was going on in Harrisburg, but I was in court all the time dealing with mandatory minimums, sentencing guidelines that didn't seem fair. And I started to learn in that new role that the things that were happening under the state capitol dome, while I wasn't 
watching it on the news nonstop or reading about it, they affected all of our lives. And once I was two years into the role and I'll say finally comfortable doing the job, suddenly there was a vacancy in my neighborhood. And thanks to the encouragement first from my senator who lives in the neighborhood and in the district that I now serve, um, I took a serious thought about running. It wasn't something that I would have considered, but he said, hey, you should think about it. You know, you've been here, you're learning, and it's a great opportunity. And look at you now. (laughs) As we kind of witness the political winds blowing, there are so many notable political firsts for you. You're not a stranger to this. How do you feel when people point out the fact that you're the first uh, woman to serve this role, the first black woman to be in this role? And is there a certain amount of responsibility that comes with that? For sure. It always takes me back to our vice president and what she said the night that her and President Biden won. Vice President Kamala Harris was so clear She said, I'm the first, but I won't be the last. And so I have a responsibility to lead in a way that it's not odd to have a woman in charge in the Capitol. And most importantly, so that there are seconds, thirds, fourths, and so many other women are able to easily assume all the leadership positions I've held that will have another woman be a caucus chair and a floor leader and a speaker. Uh, And and it go even farther because still in Pennsylvania, we're one of the few states that hasn't sent a woman to the United States Senate. We're one of the many states that has and had a woman governor. So I'm hoping that this example will encourage other women to pursue their dreams. Awesome. You've just completed your first year as Speaker of the House. Was it everything that you expected it to be? And more. It is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, We certainly have a huge burden, first of all, to making sure that everything that happens on the floor of the House happens fairly. One of the things that I took issue with as a member of the minority party and as the floor leader was that too often uh, we were silenced. Uh, One time uh, during debate as a leader, you know, you're never supposed to have a microphone muted. My microphone was turned off last or March of 2021. So I had dealt with some antics as leader. And one of the big burdens that I take with me every time I step onto the rostrum is to make sure that everyone's treated fairly. Everyone's respected. Everyone is following the the protocol, the guidelines, and we never will agree 203 separate people with separate communities and different constituencies, but we can conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the offices we hold. Yeah. You're uh, an ordained minister, and uh, I'm wondering how your Pentecostal uh, upbringing kind of helped mold you into the person you are right now. So one thing about growing up in the Pentecostal church is they make sure you become a leader from a young child. You are given a microphone, even if you cannot sing, you are told to lead worship and service. Uh, You're given all sorts of things to memorize for special services, for Easter, for Christmas. I I could probably quote Luke too. I'm not going to do it. Um, But I had it so many times for our uh, holiday celebrations. And in my church where I worship and have been for 30 years, my pastor, especially when I was young, was one of few women in ministry, leading a congregation um, and ascended to be our bishop in our uh, denomination. So I've been blessed to not only get faith instilled in me, but also leadership servant skills instilled in me and really see uh, women moving about and leading in a way. No, it wasn't government, but they were right in front of me as my role models. Yeah, understand. You're committed to criminal uh, justice reform. Talk about your experiences uh, as a lawyer and specifically a public defender and why this is still something that you champion today. 
So one of the things that I learned very early on in the criminal justice system, first, I did an internship my last summer in law school at the district attorney's office, um, not under the current administration. This is going back 20 years. And I thought that the system was fair. I thought, you know, if you got somebody and, and ordered them to do job training while they're in jail, that they get to do job training or finish a GED, that they finish their GED. We took a trip to State Road in the summer of 2005 as a law student, and I learned that the waiting lists were out to Wazoo. So my last semester in law school, I worked as a public defender intern, and I felt much more comfortable seeking justice on behalf of those who were both poor and accused and as as a lawmaker, it's my number one goal to ensure that my former clients and can really access justice. And what does that look like today? It looks like the clean slate law that I've championed so that there's more access to expungement. It looks like probation reform, a bill that just passed uh, weeks ago in the House. I mean, it looks like really changing policies that have set people back for generations. Right. Because everyone deserves that second chance, especially since they've already served their time and, and paid their debt. That's right. They wear that scarlet A forever. That's right. And as a former public defender, I know that the justice system also makes mistakes. How many times do we read about people who are exonerated 40 years later? So we have to do everything we can to make sure people get that second chance. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Give me your take on the uh, current political climate in Harrisburg. I know that some House GOP members often say that they're not really consulted or allowed input when it comes to some legislation, typical for a minority party. But is that accurate, first of all? And would you see any changes coming with regards to that? So one of the things I'm proudest of is that the minority party for the first time in several decades has more representation on committees than Democrats did when we were in the minority. They have more say uh, on the floor of the House. Uh, We do not pass constitutional amendments without a public hearing. Uh, So we've done a lot of things to change the way we operate and move as a body to ensure that everyone's voice is heard. And so most importantly, that even folks who are going to vote no have the opportunity to express why they're voting no and to be able to talk about what their constituents' perception of these bills are. Sure. Now, another one criticism of uh, House Democrats uh, with the one-seat majority, been criticized for stalling whenever someone resigns. I'm sure you're familiar with that. For example, Democrats won't be in session for months right now because there is a leak in the roof that has to be fixed. Normally, you would be in session right now voting on things and the like. This also happens to coincide with an open Democratic seat. So is this a fair criticism uh, of House Democrats? That is not a fair criticism. I'd like to point to the fact that the former Speaker of the House, now the minority leader, uh, has told several press outlets that this leak has been for two years. And if he was still speaker, would have figured out a time to do it. The challenge is it was scheduled to happen in the summer. 
The Senate Republicans did not send us the code bills for weeks, and we were in limbo and could not determine whether this eight to 10 weeks project could get started. So it has to happen so that we can preserve the historical building that we work in. Um, But no, that is not true. And if you take a look at the Senate calendar, uh, they're ran by Republicans and they have fewer and fewer and fewer days. I mean, I don't hear that, but we're not here for debates. (laughs) (laughs) Understand. But can't votes be held outside of the chamber? That presents a real challenge in this current atmosphere. Um, There were times when votes could be held other places, but let's understand things that weren't happening at the same time. A hundred years ago, there was a fire and they were able to hold votes at a church. Um, We've been able to have leadership elections during the pandemic at different places for one caucus versus uh, having 203 people meet. Mm -hmm. We have to have security. We have to make sure that everyone who can come in from the public can participate. We have all sorts of technology now so folks can participate virtually. People can debate virtually. And to be able to upend all of that and just take it somewhere, it's not as simple as it sounds. So we are doing our best to get everything fixed, everything taken care of so that we will not have to have any further delays in the future. But most importantly, to make sure that we're working in an environment that's safe, that's protected, that has law enforcement available, and then make sure that the risks that existed 100 years ago, like mass shootings, that we're not putting ourselves subject to anything like that. Fair enough. How do you think Democrats could better coexist and work with Republican leadership in the Senate? So we have done a lot of good things. We have a lot of bragging rights. Uh, The week that I got the gavel, we didn't have session for a few weeks. But when we came back, the first bill I ran was the President Pro Tem's bill, Kim Ward, a breast cancer screening bill that takes effect this month that makes sure that if you are at a higher likelihood for developing cancer, that you get free no-cost MRIs and genetic testing. Um, Pennsylvania is the only state in the nation to do that. So we have that bragging right. The second thing that we're really proud about is that for the first time in almost 20 years, we expanded the property tax rent rebate income guidelines. So if there are any seniors listening, you may now be eligible. If you're a disabled adult, you may be eligible to get some of your taxes that you paid for your house or some of your rent you're paying for your apartment back in a rebate form. So we have some bragging rights. And And what I look at is we're halfway through our session. Our session ends in November. So we have plenty of roadway to continue to talk about bipartisan wins and continue to work with the other side of the building across the aisle. Got it. Let's take a look for a moment at um, Pennsylvania's impact in the 2024 election, general election coming up. Will the state remain a key state in this election and even possibly be a decider in the close election? The saying is, as Pennsylvania goes, so goes the nation. We are, in fact, a purple state. We're not a blue state. We're not a red state. We're a state that has elected a Republican governor and then a Democratic governor. Just with our current administration, for the first time, we have back-to-back Democratic governors. Uh, It's never happened before, but we are ones to go back and forth. For many years, we had a Republican senator. Uh, Now we have two Democrats. So uh, our president coming three times in two weeks uh, to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is telling. Right. Uh, Mistake there. (laughs) Right, right. It is a purple state, and we will will be uh, one of the biggest uh, deciding states in November's election to see who will occupy the White House for the next four years. Now, the recent budget process, of course, had its challenges. There were some good things, though, that did come out of it. And I want to talk about some of the programs that the state passed at the end of the year, such as the tripling of the child independent care tax credit for working families. 
How important was that? Very important. And our caucus has been working on this for a few years. The United Way and several other nonprofit advocacy groups have talked about we can get hardworking people more money back and their state tax refund if we just change the way it currently occupies. And I'm so grateful that for folks who are spending money on daycare, on after school care, and we know those costs are exorbitant, they will be able to get more money this year for last year's tax return um, for the first time. So it's pretty significant. And I'm just very proud of it because for most of my constituents with children, it's the number one bill. You know, it used to be how But now it's daycare. Uh, It's the number one bill in the household. So it's really going to help a lot of people across PA. So your constituents have been very vocal about that, obviously. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Also, wanted to talk about um, a bill to strengthen education. There are a few bills that helped to do that. Teacher recruitment also including the removing of the financial burden to recruit new teachers, namely that's the student teacher stipend program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So as we see all the challenges around public education, uh, one of the key ones is we are in the next 10 years potentially going to face a shortage. Um, And one of the things that keeps college students from remaining in the education major is they don't have an opportunity to work. I worked all through college, all through law school. But if I had a major where I had to be in a classroom, where I had to prepare uh, lesson plans, and I also had to check and grade papers, there's no time to work. So we have a program to provide teachers with a scholarship, not for their tuition, but for their living expenses so that they can get through their undergraduate experience, get their certifications and get in the classroom. I want to talk about uh, public safety, about gun violence, especially here uh, in Philadelphia. It's a major concern among voters. Um, wanted to talk about the investments in the community safety and violence reduction programs, if you can talk about that. And do you believe that the community involvement and intervention is truly the way to violence reduction? So when we talk about violence reduction, it has to be several different factors and attempts. It's not one solution to reduce gun violence in a city as large as Philadelphia with a bustling youth population. One of the keys is intervention and prevention getting to youth before they ever decide they need a gun to be safe and before they ever decide they need to defend themselves in a way that can alter someone else's life and theirs forever. Additionally, we have to support our law enforcement, making sure they have the tools to be able to solve crimes. One of the things we secured in last year's budget is additional funding so that they can get a better forensics lab so that they can test all the shell casings that are fired and figure out if they can get fingerprints and DNA to solve these crimes crimes. Because not only are we seeing the need for prevention and intervention, but we also have a backlog that continues to grow of unsolved murders or unsolved shootings. And that is a problem because these same characters can go out and hurt someone else. Right. Now, how will your powers align with Mayor Parker's public safety emergency executive order? And is that something that you actually support? I definitely support Mayor Parker's day one initiative of declaring gun violence a public safety uh, initiative and order. When we thought about the pandemic and how vocal so many leaders were about, okay, we're in a pandemic, we have to update you, we have to get all of our different entities working to keep you safe from this virus. 
We need to do that for gun violence. So I fully support the mayor declaring it a public health emergency. And I fully support her getting all of the city organizations geared up, making that their number one priority. And as we go into this upcoming state budget, I look forward to sitting down with Mayor Parker, figuring out what I can do in Harrisburg with my colleagues to ensure that we deliver more public safety to our neighbors in this city. The Public Defender Fund is finally on the books. Talk about that and why that was such a haul. So Pennsylvania had prior to this finalized budget, which just wrapped up in December, was one of only two states in the entire nation that did not fund public defense. And so as a result, we end up with uh, kind of offices that are well-resourced and offices that are not. Some places in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania have private practitioners who take appointments, but they do not have the support of, for instance, an investigator to go and look and see if they can get information to support their client's defense or even a social worker to go and get mitigating information for a sentence. If you don't have an office that has those types of supports, then you will see that people are not able, lawyers are not able to best advise their clients. Sometimes they don't have the training. So I'm very excited to have supported the budget and making sure for the first time we have this investment and look forward to continuing to grow it so that it can be spread across the different offices and make sure that even appeals, as I said a little bit ago, people are exonerated. Sometimes Sometimes you need to have an appellate unit and some offices do not have that. And so there are people languishing in our state and local prisons that don't have access to justice. So this will also be a part of helping to keep us more safe as a community. It's great that it's on the books, uh, Speaker McClendon, but some people feel that it's not far enough. It doesn't go far enough. So I definitely see it as a start. I don't see it as the finishing product or the last number that it'll grow to. But because it had been zero, so to go from zero to several million dollars, it's a nice step in the right direction. But no, it is not enough to fund public defense in 67 counties. Noted. Now, you are very passionate and the driving force behind the Pennsylvania Crown Act proposal and the fact that we are sitting here in 2024 and people can still be discriminated against based on how they wear their hair, especially how they wear their hair as it's naturally occurring on their head is just simply mind-boggling to me that we're here uh, dealing with that. Tell me why that's so important and um, where is Pennsylvania with regards to the Crown Act? So it's very important because for people who do not uh, share either our racial identities or people of color and don't understand how much of a deciding factor it is for people going to job interviews on how they're going to wear their hair, how they're going to present themselves, and if whether how it grows out of their head or how they choose to style it naturally with locks or with an afro, whether it will be perceived as a minus. It's a reality that we need to protect. And all we want to do with the Crown Act is add that as a protected class to the Human Relations Code. And I'm very proud that it got out of the House in a strong bipartisan fashion. We had under a dozen no votes. So it had so many votes on the board. And I look forward to seeing the Senate move it out of their chamber and get it to the governor's desk. Is that anything that you personally had to deal with, you know, during your career? 
Absolutely. From a law student, it was very important to me to wear my hair the same way so that people I was networking with would remember me. I never wore braids um, as a public defender, never wore a natural style. I always had a flat ironed, same type of look. I always struggled with clients saying I was too young and was I really a lawyer? So I thought, well, if I wear my hair any way different, it's going to be another barrier for me and building a rapport to be treated as a professional. Um, it's shocking to me, uh, not only to be in politics, but to wear natural hair around the clock because I never <laughs> could have thought. You know, I grew up in the press and curl era. Yes. I had a, a relaxer from middle school. Right. So you never know uh, how the winds will blow and where things will take <laughs> you. But I'm excited to be a co-sponsor on that bill and really be a voice for so many people. And what I told my colleagues is even if you don't serve a district that's predominantly people of color, you have a constituents in every district where they will say, oh, yes, that's a concern. We need to add that to the Human Relations Code. What are some other bills that have passed in the House but are stuck in the Senate that you would like to see action on sooner rather than later? So we talked about the public health crisis of gun violence. Uh, There are two bills that would really make a difference. One of them is extreme risk protection, uh, meaning if someone's having a mental health challenge, uh, their roommate, their partner, their significant other, their friend, their coworker would be able to give that information to a court That person would be independently evaluated and any firearms that person has access to would be temporarily removed. I think about right here in southwest Philly on the 3rd and 2nd of July, where it was a complete bloody massacre at 56 Mm -hmm. in Chester, one block outside of my district, but in my neighborhood where I live. And that person had been having a meltdown for a while. And the roommates who live with that person said, oh, we were concerned for our own safety. We didn't know how to get help. Um, There are incidents like that that happen all over. In Junietta County, we lost a Pennsylvania state trooper because a person had a breakdown and just came with a barrage of bullets um, at as many troopers as possible. So this isn't an urban or rural issue, but this is an issue that if the Senate could move on that bill, we could see lives saved in Pennsylvania. So I'm hoping that they will take that up. Okay. And what are you working on for this year? For this year, we're continuing the fight on minimum wage. Um, when we think about every state surrounding Pennsylvania having a higher minimum wage, including Republican-controlled legislatures, Ohio and West Virginia, and of course, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, we have to do better. We have to show employers that we're serious about how our people are treated, and we have to send a message to our people that we respect the work they do, no matter what it is, that they will never be paid what is currently a poverty wage. $7 and a quarter means you're going to be stuck in poverty forever, and it means you will not be able to become self-sufficient and take care of your family. You're so young, early 40s, right? That's right. And your star has risen so fast, Speaker McClinton. What is in the future for you? And do you have eyes on higher office? My eyes every week are looking towards Friday. When Friday comes, I'm like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, right now, my focus is on growing the majority in November in this upcoming election, protecting all of my colleagues who are in very vulnerable communities, making sure that they come back to serve, and most importantly, uh, delivering for Pennsylvania. And that means, quite frankly, keeping the gavel, because there were some very extreme radical ideas running across that desk when I did not have it. Who's your hero? Mm, I'd say Shiro. I'll start at home with my mom. Um, She is just tremendous. She worked so hard my entire childhood, sacrificed greatly uh, for myself. My brother's 
14 years older, so we had separate upbringings. Mm -hmm. But apparently he had a good childhood, too. (laughs) But I would go with my mom. In the last year, she's had a lot of sickness, but she just continues to be resilient, and it's inspiring to this day. Okay. Democratic Speaker of the House, Pennsylvania Representative Joanna McClinton. Thank you so much for joining us in Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Hundreds of talented young dancers will audition for Youth America Grand Prix in their second and last competition this season. Dancers compete for scholarships to top schools and companies around the world. Shara D. Howard tells us more on Shara in the City. Philadelphia is unique. That's Peter Stark, director at the Rock School of Dance Education in South Philly. He's also the judge at the Youth America Grand Prix 25th Anniversary Semifinals. So I paid him a visit at the Rock School to get an idea of really what Philly had to offer when it came to dance. And of course, he gave it to me. He laid it all out. Here you have the Rock School, Philadelphia Ballet, Koresh, Ballet X, and Philadenko, plus some really outstanding independently owned schools. And there's a great platform now where we can actually showcase the talent. Can you talk about that? Yes, not only can we showcase talent, but we have a place for all of this talent to move into the field, which is really outstanding. And all of our great theaters and all those great companies I just mentioned. Let's talk about the Grand Prix. Youth America Grand Prix is the world's largest student ballet competition. Upwards of 20,000 students participate worldwide. From that, about 500 get to go to the finals. And then in the finals, they whittle it down to about the top 60 or 70 dancers. So it's, it's a super big deal. And then um, now there are cash prizes up to $10,000. But more importantly, there are scholarship and job opportunities that are, are offered. Doling out a future, a path to the future for creatives who maybe in some other respects maybe wouldn't have gotten an opportunity. Very much so. Um, you know, for instance, we have several students at the Rock School that ultimately aspire to dance in Europe. And it would be really difficult for them to go from country to country. And then within countries in Europe, there are often several ballet companies in the different cities. What will happen at the finals at Youth America Grand Prix is that all of those representatives will be there. So they are, in essence, auditioning for, you know, maybe 40 or 50 different schools and companies all at once. Fast tracking. And that's what Philly's known for. It's a via to the next thing. But now this is special because you have kids who maybe in other respects wouldn't have had a chance. And now they get to be seen. That's exactly right. Well, actually, this is the second semifinal in Philadelphia. Uh, So this is the first time that you've had two within the span of what, four months? Correct. And it's because there are so many outstanding young dancers in this area that need to be seen. It was more than one event could accommodate. So this is the second of these events. And the judges they will bring in, even for the semifinal, will be from New York, San Francisco, Europe. Um, They come from all over the world. And there will be scholarships actually offered at this event as well. Amazing. So what will the event look like? What can people kind of imagine in their mind's eye? A lot of ballet dancers and a lot of tutus. It's a little crazy. Um, there's Never too many tutus. <laughs> no, it's not too, too much. It's a lot of kids and a lot of ballet and a lot of fun. And it, it's going to be three days pretty much all day. 
day of back-to-back dancing. And what happens at the end? How does this all culminate? Well, in addition to the three days of dancing on stage, I'm delighted that Youth America Grand Prix is using the Rock School for master classes. So one of the things that's nice is that the dancers are evaluated both in their performance and in their classwork. And it's a different way to see how a dancer um, observes information and so forth and so on. When it's all over, there's an award ceremony where they give out the prizes and the scholarships. So let's talk about the Rock School. Like you guys do such a pivotal job in making sure that kids have a platform, but it's a wide range in terms of age, background, so many opportunities. For 60 years, the Rock School has served anybody with a desire to dance. We have adult classes, we have classes for three-year-olds, we have classes for kids that come here after school. We have a professional division with a dormitory, on-site academics and cafeteria that um, sees students from 10 countries and 24 states. And then really most importantly, we have an amazing Rock Reach program, which for 22 years brings dance into Philadelphia Public Schools with a focus on South Philly. And we're in 11 schools and 25 classrooms serving about 4,000 kids annually with free dance and drumming classes. We've recently added bucket drumming because of you know we saw that there wasn't so much music in school either. So now through the Rock School, they're getting free drumming class, free dance classes. And then there are several pathways to move from that into our professional division. It's like you guys don't miss a beat. You make sure that Philly doesn't either. The cool thing is that even if you can't compete in the Grand Prix, you can still come and enjoy dance. Dance is for everybody. I mean, we all move. I mean, I guess now with Instagram, we've seen parrots bop into the beat. We've seen kids in high chairs, you know, wiggling their shoulders. And, and actually, that's such a great thing about Youth America Grand Prix. There's no entrance requirement. Anybody can get in there and do it. And really, dance is for everybody. And music is for everybody. Everybody moves. And there's a place for you in ballet. You think ballet and you think it's some kind of elitist activity. It isn't. It's something that everybody can do. Thank you for being here with us. Great. My pleasure. Now, fast forward. Having competed and excelled at the Youth America Grand Prix, Philadelphia ballet student Katie Cherney, considered one of Philly's best, is packing her ballet slippers and heading to Switzerland to compete on the global stage at the end of the month in the Prix de Leçon, where 80 top ballet students from around the world will face off. Now, Cherney is only one of 10 American females chosen. So you got here. It's the hardest part. (laughs) At this point, like, you're fast-tracking. You're on the express train. Pretty much. (laughs) So, Katie, what does it feel like and what are you looking forward to? This is just a dream come true. I'm really looking forward to learning from all the teachers and all the dancers there. I know there's a lot of talent and I'm just so excited to be in the environment where they're teaching us. (laughs) I feel the gratitude and the excitement. So, how long has it taken for you to get here? How hard have you worked? I started ballet when I was 12 years old. And from there, I've been training with David and the Philadelphia Ballet. And they've taught me so much through um, stage presence and they've helped my technique so much. Yeah, and now you're ready for big time. (laughs) Yes. David Carpatian is Katie's instructor and he's also packing his bag. He says, next stop, Switzerland. So the Grand Prix, this is pretty big and Katie's going to be participating. Well, I wanted some of our students to participate for the Prix de Lausanne and Katie was one of them and she got accepted, which is very, very exciting and it's great for all of us and I'm happy to, you know, work with her and go through the process and have her, you know, experience this incredible um, competition in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. All right, so this happens, this all works out. You look to the future. What do you see? 
Um, I just really would like to work in a professional company that helps my technique. I love classical repertoire, which is very nice, and I love contemporary too, so it's a good balance. The sky's the limit. Yes. <laughs> Katie says she'll do her best to represent Philly well, so stay tuned for an update on how she does in Switzerland. Thank you for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.